Welcome to the MetaView Podcast. Hear these non-fungible conversations. They will yield you great knowledge and perspective. But beware, they might also make your brain go boom. So watch your step, because this rabbit hole goes deep. Good luck and have fun. Welcome, Hoogie, to Meta Radio. Thank you very much. And uh, is Hoogie the right way to pronounce it? It is uh, one of the many ways that I accept. <laughs> <laughs> so the the right way to pronounce it in Icelandic is Hoogie, uh, but uh, it, it tends to get lost in uh, transliteration because, of course, Hoogie is the more common one. So, yeah, Hoogie is, is fine. We can go with that. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, so since uh, you are uh, less uh, well-known in Web3, I will add some context just by saying that uh, I was looking for more great speakers from this sort of uh, meta-modern game B side of things, and uh, Hansi Freinacht or Daniel Gortz recommended you, so here you are on the podcast. And uh, yeah, would you care to uh, share a bit more about yourself? Sure. So, yes, I, th- I think... Um... Hansi or Daniel and I met through something that at the time was called Alter Ego. And the idea with that was to try to combine, you could say, spirituality with politics. Because I have been involved in really participatory political movements uh, for a very long time, even since, uh, since I was not even 20 years old. So my my start in those participatory movements in general uh was actually in 2006 when i was a founding member of the swedish pirate party uh, that has since then become a little bit of a worldwide phenomenon uh, i was involved with them for the first 2 years of their existence and i've not really been much since but the thing that i learned there and the thing that i took away from it was really that we were probably the first political movement to be organized as a swarm online nobody really met in person the draft of the the first program was all written in a forum and uh, the party stood for elections and uh, did reasonably well uh, as a as a new party and then of course spawned this international movement. So that was sort of my start in understanding that there were new avenues for coordination that had not been possible before that I had a feeling would would change a lot. Fast forwarding a little bit after I had been to university studying biotechnology I ended up meeting some people who were really starting a cultural center, which was based on participatory principles. And this was um, really overlapping with a community around a festival. And that festival was the Borderland. So I became involved with that community in 2015, 16. And what I saw there you know, having been involved in this a bit from the political side and taking some time off of that to to go do studies and do other things and coming back here was that 
I sort of realized that the, the real difficulty in doing these sort of swarm-based collaboration projects where you're allowing for this sort of very free engagement where people have a lot of autonomy, but still you're able to coordinate in this swarm-like fashion, it actually requires a lot of practice. It's not something that comes intuitively to most people. You need to go through periods of trial and failure. And society at large does not really offer that education. You don't um, really learn to operate in a swarm-like mindset in school, for example, and you certainly don't learn it in most workplaces. So the intuition I had there was that actually what's a really great way to teach people this sort of coordination mindset is to organize something that is low stakes, high rewards, and something that people still really care about. And the festival sort of hits all those marks, right? So really where I started thinking about, you know, this, the Borderland Festival and participatory culture and participatory art as in and of itself, of course, just incredibly interesting and, and rewarding for people in many ways. But I also started thinking about it from the perspective of being experimental sandbox to try out these different coordination methods and see sort of how they work, how they don't work. And the scale at which some of these events are, are happening, like, you know, there's, there's thousands of people, so it's not just 20 or 100 people. It means that you actually can try it out in a context where everyone doesn't know each other. And that's when, you know, coordination, of course, uh, is, is theoretically very difficult. And, and the Boardland is really, you know, that, that sandbox within which I've been doing these experiments uh, since 2015, 16. Of course, I say me, but it's, it's, it's literally thousands of people who've been engaged in this. Later on, through these experiments, we, we built a few digital tools or platforms. One of those platforms uh, is called now CoBudget because it merged with another platform that used to be called Dreams. And that's for participatory budgeting and uh, project coordination. And then a few years after that, I became really interested in understanding, you know, if, if, if we can make decisions about money with these uh, coordination tools, how can we also create tools that give access to that money with more autonomy so you don't have to go through a bottleneck? And of course, that's where, you know, the Web3 environment is, is fantastic, but the fact is that you know most of the participants of something like the borderland they don't know web3 they don't really want to engage with web3 it's too much of a of an overhead and this is where open collective has really come in for me which is the the company and organization i work for today which is really trying to take away those overheads and barriers to give people in collectives and communities direct access to the money that they are you know, a, a part of holding. I think that that's a pretty good lead up to, to why we're talking here today and sort of covers a few of those uh, milestones in, in my path so far. Definitely. Yeah, so many threads to, <laughs> to pull on. Uh, yeah, I would uh, love to discuss further at some point uh, about the Open Collective. And you already asked me previously, like what uh, Web3 tools kind of feel the same purpose and how we could plug this in so i have some ideas there but i want to go back uh, to the 
to the political party and uh, starting there like uh, what uh, what I think was the biggest issue there and like what uh, what are some of your biggest lessons sure so you know you ask you ask different people this question they're going to give you a lot of different answers for me when the Swedish pirate party started I was um I think I was 16 years old and to me I'd been following the corners on the internet where people were talking about you know what does the internet mean for things like copyright what does it mean for uh, freedom of information you know how does it relate to open source how does open source relate to how we you know what the software that we're using today is and I've been following those discussions sort of, you know, from a distance, of course, being very young, not really directly engaging in it at the time. And then I saw just this announcement in one of those channels of like, hey, we're starting a political party. And I immediately jumped on it because I had this very strong sense that there was a revolution happening that was going to change everything, namely the internet. And the politicians at the time we're seeing it as sort of just another technology, just something else that they sort of had to manage and control without really understanding how there's no way that they could actually do anything in the future without putting this right at the center of their thinking. So, so in the beginning, I would say that that party, for me at least, was about trying to awaken that consciousness within the political system more than for me, at least, it was about trying to get, you know, into actual power. I, for, for me, that wasn't, that wasn't like the primary goal. And I didn't, never actually thought that was going to be very likely. But I will say this also. There is something else that, that the Pirate Party has, which most new political movements lack. And in fact, uh, I would say even, you know, in the, in the meta- meta-modern uh, context. There have been political parties that have tried to be meta-modern, like uh, Alternative in, in Denmark. And, and what the Pirate Party has, and many of those lack, is a theory of uh, how power is held and distributed, right? So, I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, socialism and communism, it means that, well, power lies in capital, and you need to control the flow of capital in order to in order to have power in society, right? If you look at the green movement, it is rather about that, uh, you know, none of our other mechanisms for power will matter if we do not uh, conserve our environment and, and create a place within which to, to wield that, right? And the pirates have basically at their core uh, the intuition that information is the key in uh, modern society information and thus transparency of information becomes then sort of the thing that they put above everything else and having that sort of guiding principle uh, as a political party this idea that anchors you that you always return to that you what you know is uh, is sort of what it's all about is, is incredibly important for the success and sort of staying power of a political movement and so the pirates have that and that's something that definitely speaks in their favor. It makes sense. And uh, yeah, was the the later success of the Pirate Party being like you said that they, they entered the, the elections, but then later you you personally disengaged, but the, I assume party went on? Yes, yes, yes. The, the Swedish Pirate Party, you know, was the first of its kind. It, it, it had um, 
success in the first elections in that it became a talking point. But actually, two years later, uh, the Swedish Pirate Party did get into the European Parliament. Uh, by that time, I, I had I disengaged for various reasons. There was no falling out or anything like that, but I uh, had started doing other things. Uh, but then the, the Pirate Party became an international movement and has since you know, been, been reconstituted in different countries, even though in Sweden it's a very marginal force at the moment uh, with uh, no representation. In Iceland, where I am currently, uh, the Pirate Party is actually um, one of the four or five biggest parties. It is in parliament with a representation of about 10%. There are other countries in which the Pirate Party has been successful. Of course, in Czechia, uh, the Pirate Party is the third largest party in parliament. And in um, Germany, it has had some historical success. And in Luxembourg, I think there is uh, one or two parliamentarians. So, so it does survive. These different political uh, parties in these different countries uh, have different focuses, different uh, agendas. But what I would say um, unites them all is this general idea, this anchor of that information and freedom of information is extremely vital and extremely important and really what, uh, you know, where power is held in, in modern society. So all of them are very pro-transparency, very much against surveillance, uh, personal uh, privacy and integrity and so forth. Got it. Yeah, I knew that part, but I didn't know that they were actually came together on the internet originally and that they're like... They were like a more participative political party among among the first of those. So that, that's cool. And then uh, going forward to the Borderland. So yeah, for those who don't know it, what is the Borderland Festival? So the Borderland, first of all, uh, if anyone from the Borderland is listening, I, I should say that the Borderland does not want to be called a festival. It wants to be called an event. And this is simply for the reason that if people come to a festival, they expect stages and bands and hamburger vendors and buying beer and so forth and borderland has none of those things it is simply this it is um it is a group of people who have decided that every year they want to gather and how many people are invited to that gathering when that gathering is where that gathering is what happens at that gathering is all up to the participants themselves uh, there is no central organizing committee there is no program. There is really not any one center of leadership. There are many centers of leadership and they emerge and dissolve organically. And at the end of the day, if you just go to the Borderland, uh, you need to first win a lottery. And if you win the lottery, it is then given as a possibility to you to get some budget from the organization's um, uh, coffers to create the project that you want to bring to the Borderland, which can be anything from putting up a noodle stand where you offer free noodles to people uh, to building a uh, large scale temple structure that will stay on the, on the event grounds uh, for years. All of those uh, things are available to you and you can choose to do uh, any of that scale or you can choose to do absolutely nothing at all and just come and, uh, and uh, be among other people. It's uh, between uh, 10 days and a week happens actually right now in Sweden. I'm not going this year. I'm in Iceland this year. And unfortunately, last year, I 
also had, did not have the possibility to go. But um, what is interesting with it is I have been involved now quite some time in, in building the systems for it. And I still feel very much of a participant because I am still responsible for organizing the the online spaces in which the project curation and, and co-creation and budgeting happens. So I am sort of, uh, in the, for the last two years, uh, digital citizen of of this event. I love it. And then so you, people win the lottery, you said, and that's how they get the ticket or then they get the opportunity to buy the ticket? or Yes, exactly. So you participate in the lottery. If you win the lottery, you get the opportunity to get a membership. It's not called a ticket, but a membership. The Borderland has its own words for everything. And you get the opportunity then to buy a membership for yourself plus one. Or, or rather, you can divert that invitation to somebody, but that person also needs to have a profile and be signed up and so forth. And, you know, what's, what's more, of course, is that it's called a membership because it is a membership. Every year there is an annual general meeting and uh, the members are all invited. Uh, the public is also invited to attend this meeting. It happens online and uh, at that meeting the future of the association is decided it's a completely democratic um, structure at its core but then the layers above that the sort of actual layers where the decisions happen and, and actions are made it uh, decisions are not made through a majority decision or voting they're made through what's called an advice process where everyone has uh, the right to make any decision as long as they seek advice from their peers. And uh, people do use this. And it is, uh, I would say, amazingly functional for being uh, an event of thousands of people. And uh, one thing that is a testament to sort of the strength of this community is that a few years ago, when COVID hit, there was an idea that came up about whether or not we should reimburse the membership prices for the memberships that people had already bought for that year. And the idea was that people could choose whether or not they wanted to be reimbursed or not. And if they chose to not be reimbursed, their membership fee would go towards a seed capital to buy land. And after a few years of searching, uh, the searching was also a completely decentralized process with anyone in the community really having the autonomy and the the right to go and represent the borderland uh, speaking to landowners uh, negotiating talking to municipalities and so forth and uh, after a while a, a few good candidates were found the borderland participated in a few bids and eventually won one bid and, and bought land for about uh, 100 and uh, 1.2 million euros which uh, is a uh, quite a large swath of land. I don't remember exactly how large, 100 hectares maybe, in um, in Sweden, uh, where the event is now held. And that was, uh, you said, uh, during COVID? So this is the first time that the event is happening there or has it already happened? No, it, it happened last year also. Yeah, we, Sweden did not have as long a uh, lockdown situation. So no, it happened last year. But but there was a hiatus, of course, in the uh, first two COVID years. Got it. Yeah, very exciting. And uh, yeah, I also love to hear that uh, these other ways of, well, not even governing, but like operating, like in the Web3 DAO space, we tend to think like, oh, it uh, everything needs to be voted on. 
because that's how we make it the most decentralized by having everybody vote on something. Uh, but in reality, like, yeah, this is not uh, not even the it's not the best, not the most efficient, not even the most decentralized way. I think this is even uh, more decentralized, where it's kind of a duocracy where people get to do what they want to do. You just need to like seek advice first and integrate feedback in some way. Yes, and I would say that is both the strength and the weakness of the the way of working in in this Web three environment because actually this borderland setup and having this sort of organization, what it requires is a very high degree of trust, of course, and a real sense of that you know who the other people are within your your organization. But I would argue that any any DAO that is actually trying to coordinate towards a common goal needs to have a trust anyway. There is no such thing as as, as completely trustless coordination towards a common goal, because as soon as you have that word common, you need to have trust in that your understanding of that common is the same as the other's understanding of that common. Right. What would you say have been the, the biggest challenges to the borderland in this uh, way of operating? The, uh, the borderland works remarkably well for what it is. It cannot be anything else than what it is. And, and let me explain what I mean there. So a great strength of the borderland is that a lot of what happens is a bit amateurish, to be honest. It's very, um, very participatory in the sense of that, you know, it's hacked together. I mean, when you're there, everything feels very, very immersive and strong, right? But if you take any of most of the components of the things that are built at the borderland, and you would take them out into some other context, for example, to be displayed in a gallery or something like that, it, it would not be particularly impressive because it, it is really the, um, the sum of all of those parts that make it such an amazing experience and creates the magic in it. So I guess that a weakness? No, not really, because it's, uh, that's not what it's, it's not supposed to be, you know, a, a producer of things that should be enjoyed elsewhere. Another thing that I would say is a challenge of these sorts of organizations is that when you have this sort of decision making, it's beneficial if you have low stakes or reasonably low stakes, because at the end of the day, what will happen is that a lot of things that are potentially quite important will either not be done at all because nobody just does them or they will be done last minute, right? So examples of this could be uh, last year, there was dealing with the toilets was not done in time. So at the time when it was decided that the event would happen, which was procrastinated because nobody really dealt with putting the event together and getting the ball rolling, at the time that it actually start, the ball actually started rolling, it was too late to order toilets from the uh, suppliers because they had already booked up by other events. So then what do you do? Well, you try your best and they built some toilets that you know were the best they could do at the time, but it really wasn't good. And then it was a pretty dissatisfactory uh, solution for, for the people at, at the event and, and, and caused some, some conflicts. Now, you know, could that have been done differently? Yes, with more foresight. If there would have been a centralized committee and they knew that the event was going to happen in July and there was a person who was 
uh, responsible for organizing the toilets and they had been chosen to be that person a year in advance, then, you know, they, they would have started getting the ball rolling and, and, and done everything that needed to be done. Now, does this really matter for the borderland? Not really. I mean, people could go to their toilets and it's amazing that the community solved it as well as it did. I mean, they literally built toilets and went and, and carried buckets all week to <laughs> make sure that it worked. So th- this is an example of, of how if you have higher stakes, say if you're not organizing a festival, but you're organizing, say, a field hospital, of course, this is not acceptable, right? If you're organizing a, a disaster relief, it is not acceptable that you don't have your logistics in order. So um, I would say that this way of organizing is particularly good when the stakes are reasonably low, the engagement is high, and you also know that there's not going to be a whole lot of uh, things that can happen that would be existential threats to the to the organization if they're not responded to immediately. Does that make sense? Yeah, makes sense. And uh, then are there people like in some like I mean there are obviously higher responsibility roles as well. Uh, how does that work? I saw that you have some like uh, uh, supervisor roles. So like the most important roles have somebody who checks on the person who is supposed to do it or something like that. Yes, yes, exactly. This has evolved a bit over the years. We built a system that's called realities. So the, the borderland stands for the borderland between dreams and realities. And the dreams are the projects that people want to do. We call it the dream funding process where people you know, can co-create and fund their projects. And then they also, by the way, they distribute the funding to those projects in a participatory manner on the, on the dreams platform. Uh, the realities system is on the other hand all the things that need to be in place for the event to happen everything from you know toilets to uh, the membership system to uh, parking to you know you name it right and being responsible for uh, an area of realities when you are that you're called a realizer and a realizer is supposed to have to support them a guide and the guide is somebody who is not doing the thing, but knows how the thing is done, right? So it is their job then, the guide, for example, if somebody you know, quits the organization suddenly and is not available, then the guide is there as sort of a backup to be able to at least help recruit someone new into, into this role. But uh, the recruiting, of course, um, is completely self-appointed. There is nobody who goes around and, uh, and actively you know, interviews and recruits people. People have to just find their way into the responsibility that they think that they can shoulder. And all of this happens really on, on a v- variety of online platforms. There is, uh, you know, there is a huge Facebook group, but that's mostly for just uh, chatter. Uh, there's a Lumio forum, there's a Discord server, and then there's, of course, all of the private chats. So, so yes, people do have responsibilities. I will also say that since the land was bought, there there has been a bit of a shift because a lot of the most important responsibilities used to be dealing with and negotiating with and talking to the landowners, making sure that they 
that we were living up to the requirements that they had. Now we don't have that problem anymore because the community owns its own land, right? So, of course, the land requires more ongoing upkeep. And there are people who are responsible for the land. And there are people who are, you know, sort of the caretakers and custodians of various parts of that. And of course, that offloads some responsibility from the event. But yeah, in in essence, it's the same people. But it's very organic. People would say flow in and out of responsibilities a lot. Got it. So then, uh, yeah, going on to the the open collective. So you said that... uh, you were building a bunch of things for the borderland and then one of these pieces were merged with another project from, that was from outside borderland or it was open budget open collective co-budget co-budget so what what happened was we wanted to build a platform on which people could go create their projects and have other people join their projects and then use that platform to distribute the funding to those projects so we built our own little hacky, you know, Ruby on Rails uh, web app a few years ago. Over time, others um, wanted to start using it. This little hacky side project uh, called Dreams was uh, adopted uh, at other festivals, uh, among others in Israel. And they then expanded on the code, uh, which I had put up on, on, on GitHub and uh, uh, they really rewrote about 70% of the code. They had a very great IT team. So the next year uh, that I wanted to use it, this was in 2017, the next year when the Boardland was going to uh, use its own platform that it had built itself, the platform had been vastly improved by this uh, by the team at the other festival. So, you know, we have that for free. And that's really when I started understanding that ah, there is there is something here in this idea. So we were able to secure a bit of funding from some very innovative uh, platform funders uh, in in Sweden. And we built the first versions of of something that would be, you know, not uh, a single instance uh, hacky tool that you need to deploy yourself, but but something more of a service. And while we were building that uh, service for people to be able to use, I ran into through a network I'm participating in, a woman called Francesca Pick. And she was currently the custodian of a platform called CoBudget. Now, CoBudget had arisen to solve basically the same problem, which is how do you participate in a participatory way, decide what gets funded in a community. But CoBudget had arisen not from a festival setting, but from sort of a workers cooperative setting called Inspiral in New Zealand. That tool was getting outdated in terms of the code, but they had um, they had much better branded, better name, and they also had documentation, uh, which we really didn't have. So we just decided to merge. We took the code that we had been developing and, and uh, the name and the, the sort of documentation and the process that they had and, and merged it. Um, and since then, we've been yeah operating on, under a common name, and uh, this platform is now called CoBudget, and it's used. Uh, the biggest use cases are um, these participatory festivals. Uh, those are, are the largest users, but then there are a lot of smaller um, organizations 
or actually the organizations themselves can be bigger, like the WWF, for example, but their rounds, their funding rounds on it are smaller and they use it, for example, for funding climate initiatives in Switzerland. It's um, used for um, sort of interior prioritization of what to fund uh, of some cooperatives. Some little collectives use it basically to to manage uh, their shared money that they invest in and, you know, their own little projects. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's available online at cobudget.com. It's uh, it's basically free uh, right now, although we need to understand how to make it sustainable. Yeah, everyone's free to come use it. And it's also, of course, open source still and, and can be self-deployed. Very cool. And then I assume we also don't uh, use like a quote-unquote traditional voting system. So I'm interested in knowing like how do how do people decide how to spend the budget and allocate money on the co-budget. And co-budget is actually extremely simple. You, there are no votes. There is no fancy algorithm. You just get some money. And then you put the money in the project's budget. You you have a like sort of a, a quote unquote wallet, but uh, of course that's not representative of any real money. It's not tied to a treasury or anything like that. It's it's just a you know number in a database really. But that's what we found to be the most straightforward way to 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 do this and. The way the platform looks is uh, basically quite similar to Kickstarter. People set up descriptions for their projects. They set up, uh, compared to Kickstarter, we, we expect people to set up more detailed budgets saying what they will use their money for. Uh, they can set up a stretch goal, also then describing what will they do if they get the stretch goal funding. They put up some pictures and some, some information and add the co-creators. And then, of course, we have a comment section where people are discussing you know, uh, in the ideal world, people will help each other uh, improve the projects before the projects go to funding. But then uh, the way it works is really just that participants in the community all can get uh, money allocated to them that they can then choose what to spend it on. You, Some communities like the Borderland uh, do it completely flat. So everyone gets the same amount. In other communities, uh, there will be a committee and they really just use the platform for the committee's decisions to be transparent. And other communities have a mix. So they might give some money that's split between everyone, but then a large chunk of money is given to a committee that has much more money to distribute. Sometimes, you know, the committee will actually be, you know, maybe five different people who all get an equal split of the committee's pot. I mean, there's a lot of different ways to do this. Um, and then you'll have at the end of this process, you know, uh, some, what do you do when things are not funded, right? So, so if something just gets a partial way to its funding, the way that we do it then usually is we, we will uh, just rank all the projects in order of uh, how close they are to reaching their goal. And then at the end of the funding round, most of the time we'll do some version of removing the funds from the project that is furthest from its goal and giving that funding to the project that is closest to its goal. And that is running through that algorithm to sort of solve the the locks in the end. And uh, I'll also say that it can often be beneficial to have that process being done by a committee 
and to allow that committee to make adjustments to the algorithm and not just completely follow it uh, algorithmically, but maybe they will see a project that doesn't quite make it if you just follow the algorithm, but they can actually then make the decision to to give it some extra priority. Got it. And you said the so the rounds are organized by different uh, projects or organizations who are uh, using the platform? Yes. yes. Or, okay. And then the, the grants are like, or not the grants, but like the project pages are more so outward facing for raising money, like on Kickstarter, like you said. It's, uh, so the the decision mostly happens uh, outside the platform, like in these committees. I mean, the, the funding decision, like after the, they gather the, the funding. You mean is the funding decision? Can you, can you explain what you mean? Uh, the funding decision, like after a project has raised money through the platform, then the actual like allocation process is decided by the organization, like outside of the platform. There isn't like it's not uh, facilitated through the platform. I mean, how how the money is moved? You mean right? How it's what it's allocated? Yes. How how well w- what the money is allocated to? That's decided by the budget. So the projects usually have to specify a budget that is quite detailed. You know, it will say we need thousand euros for wood we need uh, you know the, yeah some some amount for something else so so they're uh, expected to follow the budget they set up but then how the money is moved um that's something we've now started using open collective for so it might be a segue into that that um once you have your decision and the decision has been made on co-budget of what to spend the money on um the money can then be spent through Open Collective, which you could sort of think of as the treasury, but in fiat, right? So Open Collective is just an an interface that uh, lies on top of uh, common payment solutions in in, the Web2 world, like uh, WISE and Stripe and PayPal and so forth. And it just shows the collective's uh, balance and you can submit invoices and expenses on Open Collective and get paid as a private person or as a company. And the way we combine these things is that we've built an integration between CoBudget and Open Collective so that you can go on CoBudget and submit your expenses that then end up in Open Collective. And thus we know how much of a budget has been spent, right? How much of a funded projects budget has already been spent because we can keep track of how much has been paid out through open collective with this integration got it cool that makes sense yeah i was gonna ask like where does the open collective fit in because i'm pretty sure you mentioned it before but i didn't remember that like what uh, in what context exactly and then uh, yeah going on to to civil society and DAOs. so there was a uh, your proposed topic for metafest so kind of, I guess, taking learnings from uh, all of you've been working on for the past uh, many years, well, since you were 16 and participating in the Pirate Party. So yeah, I would uh, love to hear more about that. Like, what were your thoughts there? So my thoughts there have been that I feel that the Web3 community and, and especially those in the region space should be looking more closely at the formation and history of civil society organizations and associations in Europe. And what I'm specifically talking about is that in the early 20th century, 
workers started organizing. And I mean, we often think of this as being only connected to labor unions. And of course, labor unions were a very important part of this. But what's often forgotten, I think, uh, when people think about this without knowing a lot of the history, is that labor unions were just one part of what the workers were doing in order to sort of regain autonomy for themselves. A lot of what they did was to actually build democratic, participatory, co-owned organizations that would own, they would own hospitals, they would build apartment buildings, they would, uh, you know, also do more mundane things like uh, running um, like sports uh, clubs and associations or uh, gyms and so forth. And at least in Northwestern Europe, and particularly in Scandinavia, a lot of the uh, existing infrastructure and in, in these senses, including you know, large uh, real estate developers, the largest gym in Sweden, um, you know, uh, even companies that you don't understand are actually uh, worker-run associations, are still these cooperatives. So uh, what that tells me is that on top of a sort of a very, very really informal civil society layer, because it was really compared to the alternative at the time, this was very decentralized. On top of such a structure, it has been possible to form extremely long-living, sustainable, resilient, large organizations that have survived, right? So the issues that are currently being discussed a lot in the Web3 world, specifically around, you know, how do you create sound governance in these communities and these organizations, a lot of those problems were essentially already solved almost a hundred years ago by these associations and have then been iterated on. But I think the reason for why, I don't know actually what the reason is for why the, why there is not more learning going on in trying to build these governance styles. I can, I can take one example. A few months ago, I spoke to somebody who was involved in uh, that wasn't the DAO even, that was an open source project. And that open source project was quite large. And they had run into this situation of, you know, now they had one board that was an executive board, and then they had one board that was the strategic board, and they there were supposed to be some checks and balances. And then they had some sort of assembly, and they needed to uh, figure out, like, okay, how do we who elects these different boards and uh, through what mechanism. And I was hearing him talk about this and I realized that in a lot of these um, communities that are, are running, you know, open source software or, or DAOs or Web3s, there's not a single person that has any experience from regular civil society organizations, because if they did, they would already have the blueprints in their heads of how this can look because the blueprints are already there and they're stable and they work, right? So I'm generally, I'm very interested in understanding if we can set up some sort of learning program where we come to terms with that. We don't have to reinvent the wheel when it comes to governance. And there are a lot of things we can learn. Right. Yeah, very well said. I would actually love to collaborate with you on this. This is a super important topic and i will be focusing on DAO content right after manifest 
So I think this is definitely something that we should continue talking about. Great, love it. And I, because yeah, I definitely agree with you there because a lot of people in the DAO space are reinventing the wheel and a lot of DAOs are actually not even reinventing decentralized organizations, but like shareholder capitalism where just people vote with shares and then you have people who are like oh yeah this is the first time ever that uh, we can build decentralized organizations uh, but it's like uh, no like decentralized organizations have existed probably even longer than centralized ones yeah yeah absolutely so but uh, then how do you see this uh going the other way around so the the DAO space should take lessons from the the civics the civil society and then how could the is there anything the civil society could take from the DAO space? Yes, but it won't until the DAO space starts making a difference in the physical world. And, and I think for good reason, in some way, right? When these organizations were started, these civil society organizations, you know, they were really very experimental and trying to find their way in the face of a lot of resistance from the... <laughs> from the powers of the at the time. I mean, you know, the they were really doing things in a very rebellious sort of, you know, outside of the established system sort of way. And now the tables are turned a little bit, you know, and, and I think that the civil society organizations, they, a lot of them that I think could benefit from more swarm sort of thinking, a, a more nimble, agile approach that also leverages uh, the benefits of being able to use, uh, you know, these sorts of trustless systems when you need them and hybridize that with, with, you know, this more like human interaction. There is an extremely high potential there, but I don't think it's going to come to fruition before the DAO ecosystem proves itself as being capable of doing something in the physical world that engages with people in the day-to-day. I think... A lot of these civil society organizations, if we recall, I mean, they come from really a sort of worker-oriented background, right? It's, it's like people's movements. And at the moment, the Web3 space, is it, it doesn't want to be elitist, but it is. It is technocratically elitist because the, it has not yet been able to find a way in which it can in a satisfactory manner interface with, you know, 99% of, of people. So that's something we sort of need to solve first, I think. One way of solving that could be for those of us that are in between these worlds to think long and hard about, are there any problems that civil society has that we could just build solutions for within the Web3 space, and then try to find the right organizations to adopt it, or even potentially build our own civil society organizations in you know, the, the regular legal framework ecosystem and have those hybridize with our own DAOs and build our own hybrid organizations that stand in both worlds. And those, of course, would be very small compared to the you know, the very large, impactful civil society organizations at first. But if we can show that we can leverage that sort of hybrid approach, then that's much more likely than to be invited to the table to to discuss also with a, with a, with a behemoths, if you will. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, right now there's a huge disconnect and uh, 
a lot of people in the Web3 space are kind of like building things without interfacing a lot with the real world. And then they're like, hey, real world, you want to take these solutions? And the real world is like, no, this is useless to us. <laughs> you should have asked us before you built it. <laughs> yes, and, and, and they're right. Most of the time, it is useless to them. <laughs> like, yeah, you're trying to solve a problem that we don't really have. <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, do you have any, any closing thoughts before we wrap it up? I'm just very happy to have this uh, have this conversation. I'm, I love these uh, the you know that you're doing this, that there's a community around this. I've uh, wanted to engage a bit more with uh, with metagame and and uh, this uh, overlapping communities. I mean, I've the meta modern uh, you know school of thought. Uh, I think um, if you ask Daniel, I think he will probably agree that. Uh, the first places where it gained some traction was in in, uh, in Stockholm and in uh, Denmark, probably around Aarhus and, and, and Copenhagen. So, so I mean, we've been. Uh, I remember seeing um, seeing the the Hansi Freinet books in preprint uh, lying around in, in the the spaces where we we were hanging hanging out in. Uh, I don't remember really 2017. Maybe they started showing up. Um, so, so we've sort of lived with this for a long time, and uh, uh, it's now interesting to see how how this uh, the meta modern idea has has now started merging with the Web three world in a in a very interesting way. So, I'm I'm, I'm following that with uh, with great interest. Yeah, we're looking forward to seeing what comes out of it. And uh, thank you for coming on. Uh, this was great. Fantastic. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Talk to you soon. Bye.